The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, and I'm the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist uh, and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. Uh, if you want to read my columns in The Hill, you can read them at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon front slash articles. My company, Bannon Communication Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Um, Last week, uh, we watched President Biden's State of the Union address. Uh, It is President's Day this coming Monday. And soon after that, uh, Joe Biden will uh, declare his intention to run for a second term as president. So today on the show, we're going to focus on the discussions of uh, President Biden, uh, the reaction to the State of the Union address, and also we'll talk about uh, what the president's message might be uh, when he announces uh, his intentions to seek a second term. Our guest in the first hour is Mabinti Kwashi, uh, who is a national political reporter and assistant elections editor at USA Today. Then in the second segment, uh, Tim Zank, who is a political strategist, uh, joins us. uh, And uh, in that half hour, we'll probably talk pretty much about the president's reelection campaign. Uh, first, uh, before we get to our first guest, uh, we're going to go and uh, run a clip from the president's State of the Union address where he criticized uh, Republicans for stating their intentions uh, to uh, dismantle Medicare and Social Security. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it. Unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks, so folks, as we all apparently agree, 
Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. That was, of course, President Biden in the State of the Union address last week. Uh, he talked about uh, the uh, hope of some Republicans to fundamentally change or even dismantle the Social Security program. Uh, our guest in this half hour is uh, McBinty Kwashi who is a national political reporter and assistant elections editor at USA Today. Uh, the president provoked quite an outroar from Republicans at his State of the Union. And uh, since then, and I think this is, was the president's intention, there's been quite a bit of uh, uh, discussion about the future of Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and I guess the question is, uh, the Republicans denied that they had ever threatened to dismantle Social Security and Medicare. Uh, but in fact, they had on several occasions. In fact, I have a quote here, if I can find it, uh, from Senator Mike Lee, uh, who said, uh, hang on, let me find this quote here. Um, well, I guess I can't find Oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, this is Senator Mike Lee from Utah. It is my objective to phase out Social Security, to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Uh, that was a pretty state, clear statement of intent. Uh, so uh, let me ask you, is, uh, what, uh, what is the Republican position on Medicare and Social Security? It, it seems to me uh, that at least some members of the Republican caucus in Congress want to do something about it. Is that true? It is true. Uh, I think that President Biden did not mention Senator Rick Scott of Florida, but he had released a plan cuts to Medicare and Social Security. So there are individual um, Republicans who do want to do spending cuts to Social Security and Medicare. But party leaders such as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, they have distanced themselves from Senator Rick Scott trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. And I, I want to say that House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he had said that Social Security and Medicare were off the table when it comes to spending cuts. So Republican Party leaders are against it, although individual Republicans, and you, you quoted Senator Mike Lee, um, who support it. And so I think that at the State of the Union, Biden very wisely got the entire Republican conference to stand up and cheer for not cutting Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, if they go back on that, I assume we'll see attack ads of, those, of that clip from the State of the Union where they're all standing up and, and clapping for it. And I, I also didn't ask, but one thing I want to mention is we've come a long way from, you know, that former congressman yelling, you lie, when President Obama did his State of the Union and now, you know, Republicans openly jeering and booing and going back and forth with the president during the State of the Union. And so I just think that's that's been so interesting to see the way that has morphed. But yes, um, Republican leaders understand that, like, people do, in fact, want their Medicare and they want their Social Security and they understand it's not a public or I'm sorry, it's not a pub popular issue to want to cut even if they have a few Republicans who do, in fact, want to cut it. 
Uh, well, does that mean, Mabinti, that uh, the president is right uh, when he said something to the effect that the State of the Union? Well, I'm glad we got that cleared up. Uh, Social Security and Medicare is off the table. Is he right about that? Well, as I said, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy did say he was not for um, cutting Social Security and Medicare. Again, negotiations are not finished until they're finished. And... We'll have to wait and see. Again, I do, in fact, think that the Republican leaders in charge don't want to see it happen. That doesn't stop or prevent more outspoken conservative Republicans from openly calling for it. I don't think, to be clear, I don't actually think there will be any spending cuts to Medicare and Social Security. I don't think that's going to happen, but I don't necessarily know if all Republicans are going to stop calling for it. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Uh, if there are not going to be cuts in Social Security and Medicare, and I'm guessing there are a lot of people in Congress who don't want to cut defense spending, um, if there are cuts uh, as prices keeping the federal government going, where will they be? That's the million-dollar question. I don't know where they're coming from because, again, I do believe President Biden is serious about not cutting Social Security and Medicare. And as you said, defense spending, very rarely are we going to see that. So I think we're in for some tense negotiations between President Biden and House Republicans, and someone's going to have to bend somewhere. And given the very public conservative conference of Republicans who felt emboldened, especially after the fight over nominating and confirming Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, I think he's in a tough position. Because as he, you know, as he understands, it's like, we can't default on the debt limit. Like, someone has to give. And I am not sure if Kevin McCarthy will be able to bring his conference in line if he doesn't find somewhere to do spending cuts. Okay. Our guest in this half hour is Mabinti Kwashi, who is a national political reporter and assistant elections editor at USA Today. Uh, we're talking, for the most part, about... Uh, President Biden, uh, we had State of the Union last week. Uh, it's President's Day on Sunday, on Monday. And soon after that, Joe Biden will announce a re-election. So it's a good time to talk to him. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our guest, Mabinti Kwashi uh, from USA Today, right after these messages. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we're going to let our radio listeners take a break, but we will continue the interview with Mavinti uh, for our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. So I don't want anybody to go anywhere. Uh, we're sticking with you, hell or high water. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I want to welcome back our radio listeners. Uh, if uh, you are listening to the show on the radio, uh, I should tell you if you want to see us as well as hear us, uh, there are a couple of few ways you can do that. Uh, you can watch us on Twitter at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon, or you can watch us on facebook.com uh, front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. You can also watch us on YouTube. Our guest in this half hour is Mabinti Kwashi, uh, who is a national political reporter and assistant elections editor at USA Today. 
Um, Vinti, let me ask you about this. Uh, there's been some discussion in the press uh, lately, in the last week or so, um, about the uh, role of uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris in the Biden administration. Uh, it seems to me it started with an uh, article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, where a number of unnamed sources, uh, well, there was one named sources, but they were mostly unnamed sources, uh, basically said that the vice president wasn't fitting in very well with the Biden administration. Uh, the Biden admin, the president and his staff or some combination thereof were disappointed uh, with her. Uh, my question is, uh, I, I don't know, I, I didn't like the article very much because it was basically all based on unnamed sources. And what is her, what is her status in, within the Biden administration? Let me say this, Brad. Again, Vice President Kamala Harris is the nation's first black and Asian American vice president woman. And so there's a lot of like, is Kamala Harris electable discussion? New York Times and the Washington Post. But personally, and as a political reporter, I, I would say that given that black women are the Democrats' most loyal voting block, I don't think it makes any sort of sense to try to push her out or to not put her on the ticket. Or And, and even these, these stories about uh, Vice President Kamala, I think, right, as you mentioned, these are a lot of anonymous sourcing that's that's attacking her in the media. And it, it's for individual voters to judge her on whether they think she's a good politician or a bad politician. But I do want to say that as a black female politician, she has unique systemic barriers that other politicians may not face. And so attacking her in the press, I don't know if that's a smart and wise move, right? Because if your constituency, if your base really supports her, and, and they do. Um, I remember the campaigning for Biden to choose a black woman as his vice president. I, I don't know how much sense it makes to be attacking her in the press. And I will say that Vice President Kamala Harris, she's, I did this story with a fellow White House reporter at USA Today, Francesca Ramsey, but we just did a story a couple of weeks ago about how Vice President Kamala Harris is quietly meeting with black men and, and black organizations who work with black men about how to better engage them ahead of the 2024 run for President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. So she's she's doing the work to better engage with um, the, the Democratic base. And again, individual voters can judge on how they think she's doing, but I don't think it's smart after Democrats have consistently relied on black female voters to suggest she won't be on the yeah, they. Yeah, well, I guess my question is: Are they, I mean, are there people in the Biden camp who don't want her on ticket, or is that just? A I I do think that there are some Democrats across the nation who maybe are not impressed with Vice President Kamala Harris. But when you are the first trailblazer, there's a lot of expectations on you're back. And also, this is the vice president, right? Like, no matter who has that role, the vice president is in service to the president, right? Like, they get the, the issues that are not that super, you know, sweet. <laughs> you know, that's not the vice president's forte. That goes to the president. So 
I do think there are burdens on Vice President Kamala Harris that she faces as a black woman and as an Asian American woman in that there might be implicit bias that people are not understanding or, or people are not recognizing as they attack her. And again, I do think she's made mistakes as a, as a candidate. Um, I do think she's made some gaffes that did not help her case. So I'm not here to say that she is perfect. But I do think some of these attacks, whether she's electable, I do think that is steeped in, in biases that people may not realize. Or maybe they do realize, which is why they're doing it anonymously and not putting their name to it. You know, it just seems to me, I seem to remember uh, back in 2000, after, before the 2020 election, there was all sorts of tight uh, talk about whether or not they were going to uh, keep Mike Pence on the Trump ticket. And it seems to me every time a president runs for re-election, there's talk about dumping the vice presidential, uh, the vice president, but it never happens. Um, it didn't happen in Pence cases. And I, I agree with you. I don't think it will happen in Harris's case, mainly, as you pointed out, uh, you know, African-American women are the single strongest supporters of Democratic candidates um, up and down the board. So uh, uh, I agree with you, and uh, it will be interesting to see how that proceeds. Uh, let me ask you about one thing. You said that uh, uh, Vice President Harris was working on uh, ways to improve, uh, increase support of uh, black men uh, for Democrats. How much of a difference is there between black men and black women? That's a really great question, Brad. So black women are the single loyal loyalists voting black for black men are the second voting block for Democrats. Um, there is a small percentage of black men who do find themselves persuaded by Republican talking points. And they can, if Republicans are able to either cause them to sit out of a race or even to vote Republican, they can, you know, they can eke out wins by doing that. So I would say that it is, it is important only in that if black men don't feel supported <clears throat> by the Democratic Party, it might cause it out 2024. And we already know that keeping the Senate for Democrats in 2024 is going to be an extremely difficult endeavor for Democrats. And they, re they really do need every single vote voter to show up and show out so and I, I would say that a lot of and I don't think it's only black men who say this but there are a lot of constituencies who are always like well you know politicians only come around on election day or election like year you know the final months when they need votes but I do think doing the work you know a year to two years before an election does show black men and other constituencies that there is an authentic President Kamala Harris. Okay. Okay. Uh, and let me ask you about one thing, and we only have about 30 seconds. Uh, you wrote a piece about uh, the problems uh, Democrats have with uh, white women. Uh, how much of a problem is that? In key races, it, it is an issue. Um, like some of the Senate races, well, not Senate races, but some of the key races from last year's midterm races, I looked into the data or at least some of the exit polling and it, it showed that like black, I mean, sorry, not black women, white women's votes did actually cost the Democrats 
key races. And so I will say that, you know, Democrats like to run on this multiracial coalition. And if they can really persuade white suburban voters to vote for them, they could win a whole lot more races. Well, but we that's extremely difficult. find out. And my guess is McVinty will have you back at some point to discuss that. Uh, we're going to break now. We'll be right back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We're going to start this half hour off uh, with uh, a clip from the State of the Union address. Uh, where the president discusses his accomplishments, especially of uh, bringing back the economy on track after Donald Trump's failed presidency. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. More jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years because of you all, because of the American people. We're not finished yet by any stretch of the imagination, but unemployment rate is at 3.4%, a 50-year low. A near record. A near record unemployment. Near record unemployment for black and Hispanic workers. We've already created, your help, 800,000 good-paying manufacturing jobs, the fastest growth in 40 years. That, of course, was President Biden uh, touting his uh, success in bringing the economy back to life after Donald Trump uh, did horrible things to it. Uh, President Biden should be concerned about his shaky position in the polls. But starting with last week's State of the Union address and the impending announcement of his intention to run for a second term, he enjoys tremendous opportunities to make a uh, to make a great case, a compelling case for re-election. Many voters are looking for a bright and shiny alternative to Biden, but that's not who he is. He's the voice of calm and the avatar of stability in a troubled and turbulent times, especially with the Republican Chaos Caucus <laughs> running wild in the U.S. House of Representatives. The president needs to be much more aggressive selling his successes. It's a tragedy that a president who has done so much to reboot the economy has failed to impress Americans with his efforts. The president and his administration must do a much better job getting the good word out or Biden and his party will pay the price in 2024. Our guest in this half hour is Tim Zink. Tim is a principal at Molecule, a public affairs and business company. Tim has spent his entire distinguished career shaping public policy and politics. His Twitter handle, reflecting his environmental activism, is Green Crude. Uh, Tim, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. It's good to have you on the show again. Great to be back with you, Brad. Okay, let's start with this. Uh, last week, I know because I get all sorts of calls from reporters about it, um, we had two national polls um, which suggested the president's in trouble. 
Uh, one uh, was national survey that showed that only 38% of Democrats uh, wanted the president to run for re-election. Uh, the other national poll uh, said that most Americans uh, did not think that uh, Joe Biden had accomplished much as president. And, you know, the more I talked about this with reporters, the more I got pissed off. Um, you know, it seems to me there's a lot of evidence out there that he's done a lot for the country. Um, so let's take the second thing, uh, the accomplishments. Uh, you know, again, most Americans don't think he's done very much as president. And that needs me to, you know, and the question is, why do people, you know, why do people feel that way? Uh, you know, it seems to me he's done a lot, but it doesn't matter if no one knows about it. So yeah. what's your take on that, Tim? Yeah, well, you know, I'm having a hard time wrapping my arms around it, Brad. I'm, I'm uh, every time I see this sort of news from about the president, I, I, I begin to wonder what's going on. I, I don't think they're doing a bad job of communicating. I, I actually, obviously, there, there is something going on there. That either the American public isn't listening, or they're not penetrating, or they've got become so sort of numb to, um, to Washington that they just are ignoring everything. But, you know. I've been around Washington, D.C. a heck of a long time, and i got to tell you, I haven't seen anybody accomplish more than Joe Biden in my my tenure back in D.C., and so it's kind of shocking that the American public has the same sort of attitude. And the only advice I could give is that, that the president get on the road and um, go out there and, uh, you know, uh, campaign like he's, cam like he's uh, capable of doing and, you know, start to point out all of the incredible accomplishments of the administration. Historic accomplishments. Yeah. Which is what he's doing, actually. He's yeah. uh, already traveled to Florida and Wisconsin, I think, and he's going other places. Uh, you know, you said something that I think is interesting, Tim, uh, about the reasons. Uh, I think it's the last thing you mentioned. I think voters are just kind of numb uh, I think so. to what happens and comes out of Washington. Um, is there anything we can, you know, do about that? Because, you know, as I said in my rant, it's a terrible tragedy uh, that someone, the president who's done so much to reboot the economy, gets so uh, little credit for it. Uh, is there anything, you know, that, anything the Biden administration can do to step up its act? Well, yeah, I, obviously we have to. And um, I mean, one of the things they're going to have to do is... Um, is you know begin to contrast the the level of accomplishment with of this administration, the Biden administration, with sort of the uh, the sort of uh, goon squad that's in in charge of of the United States House of Representatives. Um, I mean, showing a contrast of of sort of good governing versus poor governing would be an example. But I really think the gov I really think the president has to get on the road and go to more than just the top 13 uh, presidential primary states in the in the country. I think he needs to go and really go deep. You know, when I um, was a young uh, advance guy for the Clintons, they were in Washington State something like 24 times, and um, and you know I, I think there's vast parts of the country that don't ever see 
visits by the president. And we all know that that has the ability of driving the local news uh, for the week prior and the week of of his appearance. So, you know, using uh, going over the head of the national media and really starting to engage in a completely different way has got to be one of the strategies is on the table. Uh, my pet theory, I, you know, I think you're right. I hadn't thought of that, but I think this idea of numbness uh, is very true. And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, I make it a point to watch the network half-hour news shows every night. Uh, and I call them the half-hour horrors. Uh, <laughs> because if you watch any of the network news shows, CBS, NBC, or ABC, it's the same thing. Uh, weather destroying, uh, you know, people's homes and businesses, uh, the latest, you know, corruption scandal in Washington, D.C., uh, school shootings. It's just a miserable half hour. And, you know, somehow the Biden administration has to find a way to get out of that rut because this has been a problem because, you know, I, it seems yeah. to me this has been a problem since the be beginning of the Biden presidency uh, where he's done all sorts of things. And, you know, even though he barely had a congressional majority, uh, he got all sorts of legislation passed, but it just doesn't seem to translate. And, it, you know, I mean, I think that's a key to the Biden administration. If the president wants to get reelected, like we all do, uh, they're going to have to find a way around that or because, you know, yeah. You know, my guess is Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump, um, but I worry about one of the other Republican candidates who doesn't have the baggage that uh, right. uh, that Trump does. So uh, let, let's let's uh, uh, let's uh, do this. Uh, there's a lot going on in the states, uh, and uh, you're coming to us from uh, outside Seattle. Uh, Washington state has a Democratic governor who's now in his third term, uh, Jay Inslee. Uh, we're going to take a short break uh, in about uh, 30 seconds, but uh, just tell us, am I right? There's a lot going on in states outside uh, the, the Washington Beltway, isn't there? Oh, there's a lot going on. The states have been very active through leadership of the various governors around the country, from Murphy in New Jersey to, um, you know, this new governor in Hawaii. He's quite the guy, Josh Green. He's a physician, uh, an incredible leader. He's from Hawaii, I realize, but, you know, he's he's a real policy guy. Uh, certainly, Jay Inslee has meritorious successes, but and all of these folks are working on climate-related activities. Uh, and they're trying to get their economies structured so that their their states and their workers can take advantage of all these. We're going to take a short break now, but we'll uh, come back and talk about uh, those governors and what they're trying to do. Uh, right after uh, this short break, uh, our guest in this half hour is Tim Zink, uh, the principal at Molecule. Uh, and uh, Tim has a long history of political and environmental activism. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Tim Zink, uh, who is the principal at Molecule Inc. Uh, in Seattle. Uh, Tim uh, has a long and distinguished record of uh, work in uh, politics and environmental policy. 
And uh, he's going to talk in this segment about what the good things that are happening in the, uh, out in the States. Uh, well, let me let me uh, ask you the question I asked you before you cut off. I uh, cut you off. Uh, what good things are? How do you see the the impact of the Biden administration's first two years in terms of moving forward on dealing with important issues in the states? I mean, the the the, the various statutes or the various laws that the the president is responsible for, for passing from the IRA to the infrastructure bills are tremendously important. You know, I want to see Joe Biden stand in front of every single bridge project in America that his bills and the and the Democrats in Congress's bills are responsible for. And there's a lot of projects out there. There's a lot of bridges that are near uh, that are you know, need to get replaced. Not just bridges, but tremendously important infrastructure projects at airports and ports so that remain competitive. That's all a result of the Biden uh, Democratic administration. And, and those are happening on the ground in states. You know, states like New Jersey who are trying to transition for, to use cleaner, cleaner energy to heat their homes, historic uh, purchase, purchases of heat pumps subsidized by the uh, IRA that the President of the United States passed to uh, assist in the in the adoption of those technologies that cost consumers less to operate and are cleaner for their homes and the environment. That's just a just in a, a nutshell, a few examples. Yeah, and uh, you know, I remember. Uh, I guess it was uh, just after the election. Uh, there was a uh, uh, Joe Biden did a uh, bridge. Um, opening uh, across the Ohio River between uh, Kentucky yeah. and Ohio. Uh, and uh, there was a great visual of uh, him, the bridge, and the Senate minority leader, uh, yes. uh, Mitch McConnell. And uh, probably could use a lot more of that because I thought that was a very compelling uh, visual about, you know, the president, the Republican leader in the Senate and the bridge. Uh, and it seems to me that was a great uh, visual and uh, we probably could use a lot more than that. And the contrast was quite amazing, Brad, because back in Washington, you had, uh, I think we were around the 12th vote of trying to figure out who the new Speaker oh, yeah, of the House of Representatives right. was, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and it was a classic example of, you know, two public officials getting together to do something, get something done, while the Republicans in the House were beating the crap out of each other. Uh, so uh, that was fun to watch, actually. Um, but uh, I think you're right. There's this big difference between, uh, well, let me ask you this question. You're, you've been in politics a long time. In a minute, what should Joe Biden's re-election message be? I am the president who delivered on health care of capping the cost of insulin. I'm the president who delivered on, for the first time in the history of the country, on real action related to improving the people's quality of life, addressing home health care, addressing environmental concerns, addressing uh, historic racism and um, and issues that are associated with the, the difficult challenges we face in society. The first governor in years or president in years to actually do something around uh, 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 weapons uh, and those sorts of things. So I think he needs to go out there and talk about his record. 
and uh, he needs to show visual uh, progress on the, that the administration and, and the executive branch is making and actually executing on those policies. Mm-hmm. And he needs to do it every single day, every opportunity he can. That's the way you can translate success to the public. Okay, well, let me uh, let me ask you this then. Uh, you know, we've been talking about some states here, uh, New Jersey, Ohio, Washington state. They're all states that have Democratic governors yep. uh, that vote Democrat uh, in national elections. Um, now, you said that uh, not only is this good policy, um, but it's good politics. I mean, let's take a state like Texas. Um, they've got all the refineries, uh, they've got all sorts of pollution, uh, problems. Uh, the electric grid is pretty, uh, dicey, um, or dodgy as the Brits say, uh, you know, what would you tell someone in Texas in a conservative Republican state that this is, we've got to get with the program here. This is good politics as, as well as good policy. I would start by asking a question. My friends in Austin, who just went through a major ice storm, doesn't it doesn't it concern you that the nation's leading energy state, Texas, has people out of power for over two weeks, electricity, because of the uh, poor investment in the transmission system delivered to their consumers? And doesn't that concern you that as a leader in the, in the nation in energy, that the state politicians, particularly the governor who runs the show down there, hasn't addressed those issues? And, and why is that? I think, well, it's I a think, good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, let me ask you a question uh, about that. You know, you've highlighted some of the uh, work that's being done to uh, in different states to uh, replace the fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, we did get legit new legislative laws out of Congress, thanks to President Biden. Uh, but there's probably not going to be much happening at the federal level in terms of fighting climate change. Uh, the reality is, uh, you know, states like Texas, uh, there doesn't seem to be a great uh, incentive among Republican politicians run the state to do much of anything. Uh, are we making a progress or are we making enough progress? I guess this is what I want no. to ask you. I mean, we're really not making enough progress. I mean, I think it was Bill Gates uh, three weeks ago who said we're right now hovering around three degrees C increase in temperature by uh, by the end of the by 2100. Um, that's, you know, that's ca- catastrophic. Uh, Americans need to understand that that that's catastrophic. That's hundreds of millions of people dying, maybe billions, not just in the United States, but more likely in poor, uh, poor communities around the world. Uh, but it's a substantial problem. So are we making enough progress? Absolutely not. And, and one thing that the Biden administration has reinvigorated is, this a, is the competition around the globe to kind of do something. Because once the U- U.S. has stepped up, like, like we have, and they did historic work in the Democratic Congress, thanks to Joe Biden, um, you know, that really did change the tenor around the world. And we do need, this is a global problem. This isn't America's problem on, on, on our own. 
So we do have to, even though we're responsible for the majority of the missions over the last 40 decades, there are excuse me, five decades. So, you know, lots of work to do globally, lots of work to do locally. Okay, well, you know, going back to my sad viewing of the network news shows every evening, uh, you see all these stories about, you know, weather disasters. Uh, you know, we've had crazy weather on the East Coast where one day it's five below zero yeah. and the next day it's 60. Uh, place like California, uh, they suffered through forest fires. Uh, now they've got, uh, you know, flooding. And, you know, I watch this and, you know, sometimes they mention, well, climate, you know, scientists think this might have something to do with climate change. They don't all the time. You know, and we've got uh, tornadoes in the in the south and the Midwest. Uh, is it going to take a major another major weather disaster for Americans to, you know, get with it on this issue of climate change? I hope not, because, uh, you know, you talk to a farmer who grows corn or apples or other crops, and they can all tell you that the seasons have changed. And uh, that's that's uh, if you're if you're a fisher person like I am and you fish in Alaska, you know that every September I used to go to Alaska and fish silvers. It's now October. So things are changing dramatically. And. Uh, the way the news is reported on climate is really really uh, a challenge because there's no question that the intensity of these storms is being caused by change in weather, in particularly the warming of the oceans causing more dramatic storms. Uh, but, you know, it's hard for a scientist to say, point, put a finger on one event saying that's related to climate yeah. change. And they on that note, it. I'm going to have to stop you, Tim. I want to thank yeah. my guest today, uh, Tim Zink from Molecule Inc. in Seattle, uh, Mavinti Kwashi, uh, national political reporter for USA Today, and our own uh, Mark Grimaldi, uh, our exec intrepid executive producer who makes sure the trains run on time and the shows stay online. We'll be back next Monday with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. <laughs>